All right. Welcome to the sixth episode of our Therapy Insights Resource Roadmap Show. Uh, today, we're going to talk about some of the resources in our Access Pass library in different ways. If you're already subscribed to Access Pass and you have the printables feature included, you have instant access to everything that we're talking about today. And if you don't, you can easily sign up at our website at therapyinsights.com. Um, if you're listening to this episode on a podcast or watching on YouTube and you want official CEU credit, go to therapyinsights.com, go to CEUs, and then find the form for Pediatric SLP Resource Roadmap Show episode number six to get your certificate of completion. I'm your host, Bailey, and we have our writers, Tasanya and Heidi, with us today, and Megan is behind the scenes pulling up our resources to display. Um, so I need to verbalize our disclosures since we offer the show for CEU credit. We're talking about Therapy Insights products today, and we're also all getting paid by Therapy Insights to run the show. So we have a great collection of resources this month, um, lots of variety. We're going to be talking about um, phonology, articulation, bilingualism, grammar, and even pulmonary conditions. So let's get started. All right, the first resource we have is Spanish Language Phonological Inventory Card Set. And Heidi, you created this resource. Can you tell us about this? Sure. So um, we have another resource in our library that's for English um, with these phonological inventory cards. Um, and they were really quite popular. So I thought, let's do this for Spanish, which you wish you could do it for all the languages, but we started here. Um, so it starts off and it gives you uh, like the IPA, the International Phonetic Library, sort of like it tells you what sounds are where in the Spanish language. So that helped. I don't speak Spanish, so I don't I didn't know a lot of the stuff I was creating this resource. Um, so I found it actually really helpful to just have this this cheat sheet almost to know how to make certain sounds like I know in my head I've heard. Um, and actually through the course of making this, I started to feel a lot more comfortable understanding how to pronounce certain words and then thinking about how I am a monolingual therapist, but there are situations you end up in where there is literally no other option. So this is a nice, um, hopefully resource for people to use. So it has that little table with all the different sounds. Um, and then it also, it's really nice at the bottom, it has some other websites to explore. Uh, so like Portland State University was frequently cited as I was researching for this article, for this resource, and they just have a wealth of information. They have stuff in other languages other than Spanish as well. So that was a great starting point for me. So we just put those there. Um, and then these cue cards and community language that is produced by Eastern Health. And then it, we also wanted to shout out and list some other Instagram accounts you can follow that are bilingually focused. Um, so there's about six right there that if you follow, that's what I do. I follow them and that's where I get ideas or think about. They also have some of their own resources that we would encourage you to seek out if that is what you needed uh, for your therapy services for to provide your services. So then the other part of this resource is three pages and there are these front and you fold the cards so that you can use them where the child can either just be looking at the picture and name them or you can be talking about the sound. Um, so we use so we used the phonetic library from Spanish and then the words are written there and you can kind of use those to practice. And even if you don't speak Spanish, you're able to maybe get some buy-in or access to the language using these. Um, so, you know, I don't want to go through and pronounce them all, but you know, there's, there's our, all of our sounds and it kind of tells you how to pronounce them. So this was definitely 
a leap of like, I think this is something our field needs more of. Am I the best person always to make it? No. So we tried to pull in other um, therapists to chime in to help us make this, but hopefully it's the start of being able to build out more of these type of resources because it's so needed. And I think something I think is important with this activity and this set is it can at least offer you a starting point to understanding, like, do they actually have a phonological issue or is it a language they haven't acquired these things in English? And so we don't want to penalize a student or a child that can't do it in their second language if they're able to do it in their first. So sort of um, kind of my other reasoning for building out something like this, because you should be able to use these for like quick stimulability probes and to figure out can they make the sound just like you would want to know in English? And then maybe that's a nice place to start. So um, yeah, they're really pretty little cards. And like I said, we had a lot of um, buy-in with the ones we made for English. So kind of jumping out here and seeing if we can get some buy-in in a second language. So. <laughs> you're still muted. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just talking away. Um, I was just going to say, I love this resource and like maybe could possibly even be used like as part of an evaluation, maybe mm -hmm. like normally. Um, so it's very versatile in that way. And the images are beautiful. Um, I was also going to say it, it might be a nice segue into our research article um, if we want to move on to that. So this is a great topic, y'all. Um, the title is Phonological Acquisition in Bilingual Spanish-English Speaking Children. So this article was done, the study was done in 2010. So the takeaways, the main takeaways from the article um, are that bilingual learners demonstrate some separation between their two phonological systems, but those systems do interact to aid in the rate of acquisition. Most bilingual children were less accurate in their speech sound productions in comparison to their monolingual peers. However, their skills still fell within the normal range for their age. Super important. Uh, in this study, bilingual and monolingual learners showed very similar rates of acquisition of phonetic inventories. Researchers did not find a correlation between high sound frequency in each language and more early or accurate acquisition of those sounds. Overall, bilingual language learning did not negatively impact speech sound acquisition in young children in the study. So I think this is just really great information. Um, and uh, just kind of quickly, the study looked um, at speech sound production between monolingual speakers and bilingual learners. Um, they were, I think there were eight of each group. So a smaller study. And of course they said, you know, more research, research is needed um, with a larger sample size, um, but it did find some really great info. Um, I also found it really interesting from this study um, so it says results of the analysis on constant inventory showed that all bilingual children demonstrated typical acquisition for their chronological age. And then similar to their peers who are monolingual, later developing sounds were not accurately produced. So a lot of similarities and parallels there comparing the two. Um, and then I think this is a nice time to bring up um, just, you know, I would love to hear to Sonia and Heidi, your thoughts on this too. So historically, you know, there seems to be some SLPs out there who tell families who come into evaluations and therapy um, who are bilingual or multilingual um, that bilingualism causes a language delay. And not only is that just inaccurate, um, I think we can all agree it's just it's inherently racist and um, it's rooted in white supremacy. And it's also just unfounded. Um, it's not evidence based. It directly contradicts what was found in this research article and many other research articles, too. Um, and it's just inaccurate. And I also find that um, 
just kind of go against our code of ethics and it just seems unethical. Um, and just, you know, I feel like um, the only reason that a therapist would tell a family that is um, that English and whiteness is superior or better. And that seems to um, say that it's better than their culture and their background. And I think another thing I thought about was just like how that makes that family feel in that moment. Like what if one of the parents or caregivers or family members doesn't speak English? Like, so what are they supposed to do? Just not, you know, communicate with the child. Um, and I've, I've been told by coworkers and therapists before a, a few times um, that the child should pick a language, just, just pick one, which just felt completely wrong to me in all, all levels. Um, and then just again, directly contradicting, um, what research has shown us. And it also isn't a demonstration of like family or child-centered care. Um, so anyway, I wanted to hear y'all's thoughts on that. So, um, it's so interesting because I was listening to Heidi and then I was listening to that. I was looking at, um, at, um, this piece and I was thinking about some of the families that I work with as a multilingual clinician. Um, and I work with families who are Spanish speaking, Creole speaking, French speaking, and American Sign Language. And, um, more often I hear it with, um, well, for ASL, it's a, it's a whole different perspective, but with Creole speakers and Spanish speakers, many of these children, uh, their families are instructed to pick a language, like you said. Um, or they're told that if they don't speak English only with their child, and that's the language they're told to pick. If they don't speak uh, or use English only with their child, and the child's going to have significant delays, they're going to do poorly academically. Um, and we know from research that this is not true. And, and more research is being done now because people are becoming more aware of, um, of the fact that it makes no sense and that it's, it's culturally um, insensitive. And um, research is showing that these children actually succeed. It actually helps them succeed to use both languages. And um, what we also know is that they actually do acquire a good receptive, um, they require receptive skills in both languages. English as they may have in their uh, primary language or secondary language. Uh, but as they grow older, they develop it more, right? So they're having, they have a good amount of uh, receptive skills in, I'll use Spanish, for example, and they'll have the other half in English. And as they grow, they develop that children have to pick a language. And, you know, you may think that it's something that SLPs are not doing as often now because Ashley's is pushing this whole cultural confidence um, thing, but it still is occurring. And what's dangerous about it is that um, children are not only losing their language, they're also not just losing uh, important aspects of their culture, but they're not able to maintain that bond between them and family members who only speak their other language. Um, so we do have to get into the habit of not doing that for people who um, a lot of these parents who are sometimes they migrate or they immigrate to the country, um, they already come with an idea of one of their children to act to acclimate into the culture and better. So it's very dangerous because they themselves acquire this thinking that 
their language and their culture is not as uh, important as the uh, English or the American culture. So as SOPs in 2023, we need to get, um, we need to advocate a little better for these families and stop telling them that uh, they have to pick the language. Yeah, when I was working through these, because the next resource we have is, well, one of the other ones today we talk about is like sort of just like a, where would you even start with these clients if you're not familiar with them? Because there isn't a lot of support in our field. And like you're saying, it's just so, it's not morally okay to go about treating that way, treating families that way, or treating disorders that way. Because one of the biggest things that flagged across all the resources I was looking at is we're over, we're identifying children that are on, that are bilingual as having disorders and maybe they don't. And then you're getting in a slippery slope where like you were saying, Bailey, you're, you're imposing like another culture on them and saying, well, you're disordered because you're not like, you don't speak English well, or you're not white, or you don't fit in with wherever you live. And so I think that, you know, in some ways these, making these resources made me uncomfortable in the sense that I was like, this is not something I'm super familiar with, but I think that's what our field shies away from is stepping into those and saying, let's try something or let me at least start really thinking through this and combining these resources so it's accessible to our subscribers to start thinking, what should I do? Maybe I can't solve it all in one resource or one treatment session, but I can at least have a better, deeper understanding of where things are coming from. And can build out to be better, a better support and advocate for these students and these kids. So I feel like, you know, maybe my main takeaway from building these was like, I need to keep doing better. There is, there are resources there. We just need to find a way to make them the norm and kind of swim against the tide that's been going of negative um, connotations for bilingualism or yes, over characterizing disorders or not serving these families as well as we could, even if we are a monolingual therapist, like not letting that just be an excuse anymore to say, well, I don't speak that language. So I guess you're going to have to figure out mine. <laughs> we'll go from there. So anyways, interesting stuff, but I agree. There's a lot more research lately and a lot more resources. So it's up to us to kind of use those. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you mentioned something, but I think academia <laughs> is one of the places where we could start because I know a lot of, um, I have a lot of classmates or colleagues who said that uh, their program made it mandatory that they took our speech therapy themselves, either for uh, accent or dialectal variation. Um, and many of them were programmed mandatory for students in order for them to graduate as SLPs with masters in SLP. Um, they have, have to take and they have to change the, of whatever region they are um, studying in. So we have to start, I mean, that's not the, the only place that we can start in, that's one of the main places that we should start in. It has to start with our programs that we are being educated through. Because what happens is, as SOPs who are bilingual, multilingual, uh, who have dialectal variations, and even as those of us who are monolingual, and we're seeing this model from our academic program, and we in turn go and we, we do this to our, our patients and our clients. So that's one of the places that we can start. 
you read my mind, Sonia. I was just going to say that. Like, I totally agree. You know, how are we training and educating students, grad students and clinicians, you know, from just from the start? I, I can't recall. Maybe we had one discussion in our language development class about this, you know, about multilingualism. Um, so, yeah, that's absolutely a great starting place. Thank you guys for contributing your thoughts to that. Um, let's move on to our next resource. So Heidi, you wrote this one. This is titled Working with Bilingual Clients When You Only Speak English. So continuing this great discussion we're having. This is a, a three-page resource with tons of just packed info in here, um, divided up into paragraphs and bullet points. Um, tell us more about where you were going with this one. Well, this kind of like you guys are saying, it's like, if I could take a class on this, these would be the five sections I would want to learn about more. So I try to give you guys like a brief overview and like we collaborated a lot with um, a bilingual therapist that we looped in to make this even richer and more appropriate. So um, I'm just going to go through the sections because I think those are the most useful um, parts of this resource. And again, it's kind of just something you, you need to read it and then digest it and think, how can I implement this? Because I found myself after putting this piece together, being a little more critical in my planning for my own, like my job job, my work with patients and thinking, okay, reminding myself that language learning is a system. It's a, it doesn't matter what language we can still find ways to understand where deficits may or may not be. It doesn't have to be solely based on what language the child is using. So anyways, the first part, just like we sort of are talking, this is a thorny issue in our field. So there, we just have a little note on the ethics um, and just mentioning it is a great area to be a monolingual therapist giving services in a, in a, to a non-same language child. I mean, there's just inherently all kinds of pitfalls. And again, are you promoting one over the other? Things like that. Um, so your best thing is your best thing you should be doing is finding a bilingual therapist, which you can't always make them appear out of thin air, especially in different areas of the country. You're not going to find that. Um, so, but that is the most ethical thing to do is if you can't provide services in their native language or their home language, then you need to seek out someone who can. Um, and that's being that advocate piece we're talking about. Uh, again, if you can provide an interpreter service, that's kind of a nice middle of the road, not ideal. It's super awkward a lot of the times. It's not reliable. It's not available. But another option you could, you know, a professional translator where you're, it's either a service your um, facility has or something comparable. Um, really, the last thing you want to be doing is trying to get a sibling or a family member to be translating things that just gets thorny because you don't know if they're, you know, you can't assess everyone's proficiency in every language. And that's just, that's putting a lot on uh, sometimes a child. I've had situations where, yes, it's like a teenager has come in and been like, well, I'm going to translate for my mom. So she understands what you're doing with my sister. And, you know, if that's really the only thing that there is, you can kind of plod through that for a little bit, but that shouldn't be your standing treatment model. Um, and so, and, but ultimately if you're willing to put in the work and make an effort, it is okay. It's ethical to, to try. It's better to try to provide services than to, um, if you're comfortable, I guess would be the caveat there, than to just let a child languish and not have services if there's nothing else available. Um, so we also then, like we were talking in the last 
little bit here, just the framework for bilingual child development. It doesn't cause a delay. There's language confusion. Actually, a lot of times if you find kids splicing languages together, that's showing an elevated understanding of both languages. So we shouldn't be critiquing that. Um, if there is an identified language delay, you should still present both languages. You don't have to stop you don't have to, you don't want to enforce that idea of picking a language. Um, and again, if you were going to pick one to cut back on, it would probably need to be the second lane. You know, you want to support their home culture and where they're from, not say, well, okay, time to move to English because you're, you live in America now, you know, like I hear that unfortunately more than I wish I did in all parts of my life. <laughs> but, um, and something that's just so beyond the ability a lot of times of a monolingual therapist especially to understand is there dialectical differences in every language so you really have to if you can figure out maybe where the child is from and then get a little more information maybe speak to a Spanish speaker or someone who's more familiar with the language even if they're not part of your session and sort of say is there a dialectical difference going on you know we have quite a variety of um, Afghan refugees on our in our community here and there's quite a few um, dialects um, for their language, and it varies greatly. And sometimes we have trouble with interpretation services because they don't line up. So just being aware that we don't want to, again, assume that somebody doesn't understand what we're saying or that even the interpreter is not understanding. We want to assume that maybe there are just too many differences still, just like there are in the U.S. People use different words in different parts of the country for different things. Um, and something I found most useful was researching the native language phonology, kind of like we did with that Spanish um, phonological inventory, trying to understand a little bit from your perspective so you can know how to identify different phonological processes. So that kind of works if you perceive they have a, uh, an articulation disorder. Uh, the assessment evaluation piece, there are a couple um, that are translated. We're kind of, again, in a narrow silo of, front, of Spanish, sorry. Um, so the PLS comes in Spanish. Um, there's a new one called the Bilingual English Spanish Assessment. Um, again, those are designed with the right intent, probably. But again, any standardized assessment, it doesn't matter where, who, what country, they are inherently biased in their creation. So, you know, using words or scenarios that kids in different cultures may not have access to. It comes from a very white um, English-centric model. So just being aware that you still have to have a critical eye, even if you're able to give an assessment in Spanish, you know, we don't want to assume um, that there are deficits because there could be just a breakdown in, well, I've never been to that place or that place doesn't exist in my world or we don't use that kind of um, social situation. Um, so using dynamic assessment is really the best, one of the better ways to go about this, like teaching a child something or so first you test it, you kind of say whatever you, whatever the stimuli is, you know, trying to get them to say, um, or say request something. You try to teach them that in the session. Um, and then you go back, you do something else and you retest it and see if they can show the skill. Um, so that's really hard, especially as a novice clinician to kind of pull that off. But as you become more seasoned, you can sort of teach and reteach or teach and retest these um, different uh, stimuli that you're trying to understand, whether it's a language um, piece like expressive receptive or it's an articulation, you want them to produce a sound. Um, and then again, criterion-based assessments um, 
where you're just kind of measuring the child where you're starting with them and how they make progress is probably a better route as well than relying heavily on standardized assessments for these um, this group of students. Uh, and again, as much as you can doing really thorough interviews so you can understand where these families and children are coming from. Where are the breakdowns? What can they describe? Are they having trouble understanding the child in the native language and their home language or are that's not really the issue. It's they're having trouble with English or whatever, you know, trying to understand all the different pieces. Um, I also came across when building this that I don't know if people are familiar with the school age language assess school age language assessment measure SALT um, or SLAM, sorry, and then there's SALT as well. Those are platforms you can use and do a language sample and they actually will translate into a couple different languages. So that could be helpful too, where you basically just record the child interacting with you and then it can do a language sample and that could be super helpful when you're not totally familiar with the morpheme morphology and syntax of another language but it would give you a starting point to understand so there's actually like we're saying there is stuff out there it's just not always easy to find or understand so you have to take the time um kind of speeding up here goal for me goal formulation um you can kind of use use resources online, figure out what the phonemic inventories are um, if you're dealing with articulation um, and find what error sounds or patterns that would align and you could make that a goal. Um, you wanna make sure that the family can understand the goals. It's not useful if it just, you only understand it. So being really cognizant of that. Um, and again, making sure even though it's gonna be difficult, finding a way to understand how their communication is impacted at home and that these goals align with things that they want, not things that we think they should be able to do. If that's not what the struggle is, it's not an appropriate goal at home. Um, so I give some examples of each. And then for treatment, again, you're, you can still use the same research-based treatment. You just have to find a way to either utilize, you know, I think of like working with the like maybe two-year-old population where you're trying to just teach simple requesting behavior or teaching vocabulary. You can learn that too in another language. You know, that's why pictures are really great to have access to. And if you're able to do that research on your own outside of the session to provide them, not that you're trying to provide the session in Spanish unethically, but you're trying to say, let me give you more familiar stimuli and words that you may recognize so that you're, I'm kind of teaching you the skill, and then the goal would be to teach the family at home how to engage in these activities. Um, so anyways, I think the, <laughs> the big thing here is you have to keep learning. I mean, I finished this resource, and then I was like, there's so much more I want to add. I feel like I'm so behind in this area, but you know, I think you have to kind of say, I've got to jump in and get some sort of framework to start from, and maybe that will be helpful. So that's kind of what this resource is trying to do. So. Awesome, Heidi, thank you. Um, go ahead, Tasanya. Yeah, I really like this resource, Heidi, because I feel like there are way more monolingual SOPs um, than there are bilingual or multilingual. And we treat so many children, we encounter so many uh, children who are bilingual or multilingual, who need services. And like one of you mentioned before, they either uh, don't get it because some people just like, you know what, I'm not touching that. They're bilingual, I'm multilingual, I mean, I'm, um, I'm monolingual, 
or um, they uh, try they try to work with these children, but the approach is just not right. So I think this is a nice this is a nice step, step you know? um, And you had mentioned something about um, differences with dialect, and I think that's really important because um, so for example, with like Spanish speaking uh, patients, sometimes we'll get an interpreter, and that interpreter is supposed to be. Uh, first in knowing that there's going to be variations of dialect, but they are communicating with the family with uh, Spanish that's from Spain, and these families are from Ecuador, or, um, you know, and there's so many differences in terminology that's used, and it still is a language barrier. Person to intervene, it's still not it's still not most optimal, but, you know, I think just keeping things like that in mind um, and still always, and when you still have, when you have someone who speaks the language, you still have to keep ethics in mind and you still have to, you know, keep uh, cultural variations in mind when you're working with these uh, families. Um, and also um, some some facilities don't have someone that, like a live interpreter, and they go for what's there. You know, they have the virtual interpreters, which I think is amazing because it's always about trying to find someone to intervene who can help to make um, the intervention more robust or more effective. But we have to also keep in mind that there's a cognitive component that um, the virtual is not always the best either. So I just want to say that it's okay sometimes to pull a family member in or someone who's there, um, keeping HIPAA guidelines, of course, in, in mind, but just to have someone there, a live person to help, because sometimes things are too, concepts are too abstract um, when there's a cognitive component that's there. So you might have, you might be doing your best to have a virtual interpreter there, but the individual still is not understanding because first of all, you have to understand they're talking to a screen or listening to a, 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 a speaker, a phone with someone who's talking to them. So there's a lot that's involved in that. So um, the point is that um, even in trying to be uh, clinically, ethically uh, sensitive, we still have to continue to do so as we, we bring in uh, to the session all these other factors that we're using to try to help uh, our patients or our clients, our students. But I love this resource. I completely love it. And I would add it to, um, I give my interns a packet when they come in. And this is something I would give to my interns to use um, with uh, throughout their, their practice on the company. I was just saying, like, after putting this together, I mean, like, this took a while because I, you, you're dealing with trying to capture a really big issue and like make one, one to two resources to start. Um, but kind of, like I said, my takeaways from it were we've got to try and we've got to try to do better. And then I almost didn't become over as overwhelmed because I was like, you know what, if I'm doing an early language session with a little kid, if I'm doing that in English, I'm not teaching 50 new words in this. Yeah, I mean, yes, you wish you could talk more in the other language, but it's like, it's not that hard for me to think about how could I just use colors in their native, you know, go find and how to learn and listen on Google. I mean, you can type it in and it'll say it to you um, or just simple requests, like how much more progress we could make if therapists 
were willing to kind of put themselves out there and try, you know, asking questions like KS or different phrase, just short phrases. Like it's not, we're teaching language. Like I was saying, it's a system. It's a way to learn something. It's not a silo that's English. You only learn English this way. You learn every language in that way. So what things kind of challenging myself to find, what are the similarities of things I could do so that I can just learn a couple of things and get started somewhere. So just definitely a big area for growth for everybody, probably (laughs) in our whole field and just, yeah, so. (laughs) That's so true. Like what you said about being an area of growth and like what you were saying to Sonia, how you would you know, provide this to like students or interns and maybe even like I had the idea of maybe like doing an in-service with other, like if there was like a bilingual or multilingual therapist at the facility, you know, they could maybe use this as part of like an in-service or training um, just to, you know, have that, have that discussion with the whole team, make sure everyone's on the same page and just keeping one, everyone abreast of this, you know, of this info. Awesome. I love it. All right, let's hop over to our next resource. Tasanya, you wrote this. Um, this is called Pulmonary Conditions and Pediatric Swallowing Difficulties. This is a one-page resource. It has a paragraph at the top and then a chart at the bottom. So tell us more about this resource. So how many of us as SLPs working with dysphagia have gone into, I'll say the acute care setting more often, but not just acute, sometimes long-term care outpatient settings and we're consulted for um, complaints of swallowing difficulty but there's no related diagnosis is what we would hear from the referring physician or practitioner you know like um, oh well the child's complaining but there's no reason for it there's no neurological reason and then um, sometimes the chart review does not list a pulmonary condition Um, Or sometimes it's there, but the uh, practitioner doesn't think about how that may impact um, swallowing or how that may be mirrored as a swallowing um, component. So this is what I was thinking about when I created it, because I know several times I've gone in and and either encountered this or I've spoken with colleagues who are like, well, you know, it's really like a pulmonary condition. And with our adults, if it's COPD, people tend to think right away, okay, well, it's, it's the COPD. It's not the, um, it's a chronic obstructive pulmonary uh, disease. It's not the feeding or they, they tend to problems have a little differently with adults and they do with kids. So that's where I created this. So um, basically, um, this that contains two children, and uh, the focus was so Did we lose you to Sonia? Oh no. I just, I, she'll hopefully come back. I know she said there's But now, okay, okay. Um, so I'm gonna backtrack a bit. I don't know what we missed. So this content, this piece um, has a little information on pulmonary conditions um, specific to the pediatric population. And even though I did focus a little bit more on asthma, it could be applied to um, other pulmonary conditions as well. And as SLPs that are trying to trying to add to evidence-based practice, we should always be doing research anyway. Um, so you would, uh, when you're working with 
this population would always be doing um, research anyway to see how this applies. But this just lists uh, some of the associated swallowing events that we may see with children who have a range of mild to severe asthma. And what I did was I provided um, the stage of the swallow and what impairment we will see, and then some of the characteristics and a little explanation. So for example, um, during the oral stage of swallow, we may see atypical movements of the tongue, and, um, and it might be through push strength coordination and control of the tongue with liquids and solids, and it takes place um, during oral bolus formation and bolus propulsion, and we see it with mild and severe cases of asthma, but more so with, with severe Cases. As we do come across children um, in various settings, but very often in the acute setting, who present with feeding difficulties um, that are associated with their pulmonary condition, I created this piece. So I can tell you that I've sometimes went into um, to do an assessment with a child. And um, like I started mentioning before, um, the nurse might say, I don't know why they're complaining. They're complaining about pain, they're coughing with everything. And then when you do your case, your uh, history, sometimes you as the SLP are the one who pick up on the asthma diagnosis. You know, they, they forget about it or people don't realize the impact that the asthma could have on on their swallowing function, or um, sometimes uh, their swallowing is fine and they're showing signs and symptoms of airway protection difficulties, such as coughing, um, throat clearing, and it's not anything to do with the uh, swallowing function per se, but more so it is a characteristic of their asthma or their pulmonary disorder. So this is what this um, piece is all about. And I would say that SLPs can use it. I would share it with nurses. I share it with physicians. Um, and I, this is something that I give to whoever's in charge of the unit um, for education uh, for the unit and be able to share this with them. Yeah. Go ahead, Heidi. I love this because I, I was going to say, as you were listing the people, I was like, I'm going to give this to the doctors and the ICU because the pediatric ICU I work in, because they just think everything is a side, like, it's just a breathing issue. There's nothing to do with swallowing. And you're like, it's all right there. Why wouldn't it, you know, and just having, or even pull the paper you're referencing in it to show them like, actually it is um, very impactful. And you know, like you're saying through the case history, sometimes it comes out like, oh, they've had pneumonia a whole bunch of times, random. And you're like, actually, it's probably not that random. Like, <laughs> And you're like, here's why. Because um, I think this is, especially I feel like asthma is angry, you know, the prevalence of it. We have a lot of admits here for asthma, you know, severe asthma attack uh, and just intubation for long periods of time and the pulmonologists love us but we can't always get to them through the attendings we have to stay in our lane and I'm like I know the pulmonologists will love my office so this is a good resource to use for that yeah super unique resource and I, I love the chart at the bottom uh just how you have it like it's just easy to read 
And like, if you have to quickly reference it, or if someone else of a different um, disciplines reading it, it's just, it's very like easily digestible, but like has really great um, detailed um, info in there. Thanks for that. Let's move on to the next resource. This is called Gliding Under the Ocean. It's an articulation activity. Heidi wrote this. This is like so like pleasant to look at. It's beautiful, beautiful colors, really engaging. Uh, it's four pages. Um, it has instructions at the beginning with some bullet points and then um, a nice scene with different ocean animals and then um, some individual cards. So Heidi, tell us more about this resource. Well, um, you guys have really been interested, it seems like, in more articulation resources, and we seem to do a really good job of making pretty ones that aren't antiquated looking. So, and glides are always a tough one. So um, this is an ocean theme. Yeah. So, and then I just give like um, 10 ideas of different activities you can use. So there's flashcards, you could match them, you could turn the lights off and do like an under the sea um hunt kind of thing where you could have them look at you know point the flashlight or pin light at one of the animals and say it uh yeah matching again or you could make a tongue twister with the words or a scavenger hunt with the cards around the room this is a great like please laminate and use for multiple people because you probably kill your color printer if you did this <laughs> 12 times but a good one to just have in your um your file cabinet. Um, you could do rhymes. That's something I find are really helpful for glides too, is like how you get two, two attempts for the price of one kind of what, what rhymes with whale and they could say snail and things like that. Um, and then you can have them sort these cards by uh, sound position to try and get building more of that phonological awareness. Like where is the L sound? Is it the beginning or the middle or the end of the word and put them in groups? Um, using a mirror when you're practicing these words. Um, they could build their own story. Um, and this also, you could probably find a way to um, do a teletherapy kind of activity with this if you're in the teletherapy world. So again, just an easy, very straightforward um, resource, really just making it to bring materials into the 21st century. I hate doing flashcards that are old and ugly or tattered. So. These are really bright and shiny. And I also made this one, that whole um, submersible thing was going on. So it felt kind of like, oh, everything's in the ocean. <laughs> so anyways, random uh, thought, but yeah, lots of cute things. So easy to use, print and go for sure. I And I work I with clients. Yeah. I love it. And I like that you gave um, some sample activities that they can do with it. This is so gorgeous and it's so funny like you said i pulled i won't say which one it was i pulled an old uh deck of cards that i had and i was like oh my gosh this is so outdated so dull and some of the pictures are so inappropriate <laughs> um this i love this i absolutely love this i love that about our resources like we're just that kind of sets us apart we just have really nice graphics and images um and i feel like a lot of the kids I've worked with love ocean animals. It's just kind of a favorite, you know, among, among kids, maybe not every kid, but definitely a popular one. So definitely lots of ways to use this. Love it. All right, let's hop over to our next one. This one is dynamic, irregular past tense practice activities. I love anything with like grammar. Oh, I just love it. Um, Heidi, you wrote this and we have 
a couple of different pages. The first one um, we'll talk about has different um, numbered uh, instructions, and then we have some images and graphics. So tell us more about your thoughts here. Well, like this month, the theme for me is what are things I'm not good at doing in therapy? So bilingual therapy is a, a growth area, and I cannot stand teaching irregular past tense because it it's difficult. And it's like you were, like we've said, a lot of the resources around it are very boring or dull and they don't move and they don't, they're not really, you're just kind of hoping eventually the child memorizes what you're telling them is kind of how I feel. So anyways, the first page here kind of goes through, it has seven ideas to use these resources. Um, so I was trying to think of a way to make something move a little bit more. And like, cause I just have time with trouble with that temporal aspect of for kids to understand what yesterday and today and like how do you get them to understand why and to switch and things so there's these two um, frames so what you would want to do is cut those out the yesterday and today and you can kind of move them over there's two blank landscapes um, I think we have these slides will like move here in a minute if you're watching um online, but we'll wait a second. So things you can do. Um, so having the child kind of just taking time to understand what past and present tense are. So moving yesterday, today, and like you could move them in more. There we go. Beautiful. Here it goes. <laughs> um, and so then you see these, um, they're the same cards. They're the same picture for the present and past tense, and they have the word on them. And so again, it's still a little hard because like, how is the child going to know the difference other than spelling? But you're just going to have to hopefully, you know, this is great for kids that can read. If they're still pre-literate, then you might have a few more struggles getting this concept through, but you'll have to rely more on the auditory cues. Um, and then sort. So sorting is always a good activity, matching pairs together. Um, and then drawing three cards from the same tense and making up a story and then trying to get them to tell the story in um past tense and again using these frames to kind of help them have something to do kinesthetically like okay I'm going to move these down here look makes made so yesterday I made the um what is he doing he's painting yesterday I made a painting activity today or I'm he's makes one so it, again even as I'm, I'm stumbling over my words because it's just such an awkward thing to teach but I felt like giving some more visuals and cutouts and things to move around would at least give you more flexibility versus just like here's a worksheet fill this in you've got to understand that makes goes to made or speaks goes to spoke things like that um something i found works really well is saying it wrong trying to get your client to say the wrong thing like when they're starting to master it be like okay say that backwards or say that for today even though it happened yesterday or you know happened yesterday um, and then you could also make a little Mad Libs. So again, trying to find, you know, I don't even think I have all the right ideas for how to use these cards and these sort of frames and landscapes, but because it's more mobile and you can just cut them all up and have the different scenes, you can move things around in a different way to maybe give some more depth to the activity or help those learn those people with you know, kids that need more visual supports for this or the moving piece or the temporal understanding. So um, again, it's a difficult one. So at least you'll have some cards and some different frame, literally frames of reference to um, understand the two tenses. So <laughs> maybe it'll help. 
yeah, I'm always looking for different ways on how to address this particular just abstract part of, of, of our language. Um, I love it. I love how, you know, there's just like different ways to use it. And like, again, the images are like super engaging, um, good conversation pieces. And even like going past, you know, we could make even more sentences or a few different sentences, depending on the child's functional level. Um, yeah, this is fantastic. I think it was a good idea to use the same images as well. I think it will help to carry over the concept. You know, irregular past tense is one of those topics that I put into the basket with our difficult areas, like with R, for example, you know, that's articulation. But um, that goes into that basket. I think that this helps. This helps a lot. This, this would help a lot. Yeah, I went back and forth on having the, the pictures be the same, but then I was like, they have to be the same because that's what kids aren't under. Nothing is different except the word that you use. So I, I'm glad to hear that support. <laughs> that was a good choice because I was like, it should they be like one have a different background color or something like that? So you could do that as well. Put like a little star in the corner of all the past tense if you wanted to help them identify. But again, you're sort of just trying to make a really abstract concept concrete and that's always hard, so. All right, y'all, let's move on to the case study. So I'll go ahead and read it and then we'll talk about it and our resources that we chose. So the case study for this month, um, and just before I start, we always like to um, do a case study because it allows us to just talk about potential cases in different ways. We all give our perspectives. Um, and also um, we like to tell you about some of the other resources in our archives that relate to the case study that you could use. So we have a six-year-old female who has a diagnosis of childhood apraxia of speech. She has been in speech therapy two times a week for the past year. She recently changed schools um, going from kindergarten to first grade, uh, which her parents report has caused an increase in challenging behaviors at home. Her speech pathologist also feels her progress has and therapy has been affected by this life change as she is difficult to engage and often refuses to participate. Her parents are wondering if she could either take a break from therapy or increase therapy sessions while she is adjusting to this change. So we all chose some different resources from our archives and um, the one on the screen now is something I chose. So um, this is a one page resource. It's um, a really nice simple activity. Um, it's spring themed apraxia activity and we call it the speech garden. So this has some CVVC different syllable shapes with pictures of flowers. Um, so some examples are me, my, be, bo, pie, etc. And um, it has some instructions at the top and the child can uh, place the flowers in the picture in whatever way they want to um, by practicing um, each syllable shape or word. And then um, again, depending on, so this child, for example, might be past, you know, those um, smaller syllable shapes. So um, putting those into sen sentences, because we know con practicing connected speech is so important with apraxia. Um, and just using those words in different ways, um, you, you could do it at the word level, phrase level, sentence level, connected speech. Um, so it's a nice way to practice those um, different shapes, depending on where the child is, and then incorporating them into where their uh, current level is. Um, all right, let's move on to the next resource, I believe, Tasanya, you chose this one. So it's a one-page resource called Therapy Techniques and Activities for Childhood Apraxia of Speech without a certification. Um, so go ahead and tell us uh, why you chose this resource. So um, I just want to say that the family is requesting to either take a break or to increase. That's a big, it's very like cloudy. I mean, it's very confusing. You either take a break Or even I chose this family um, 
could also try to, to be involved in doing some therapeutic stuff in the home setting. So it discusses um, what uh, CAS characteristics are and some of the guiding principles, how to develop a treatment plan, motivating principles, um, tackling dysprosity, incorporating phonological awareness, and also a little bit about certifications and childhood practice of speech. And even though this would be more so for an SO, a clinician, I always think that the most therapy is done or the greatest therapy is done at home. So um, I would share this with the family. Um, and I, um, yeah, I would share with this one with the family. So they have an idea of what, they're, uh, what they can do uh, with some goal planning at home. We can go to the next one. So this one uh, talks about speaking rate and pacing, and there's some ideas on how um, children with articulation errors and phonological processes um, and speech delays, uh, practice, uh, practice of speech, excuse me, um, how they generate, how they generally benefit from speech pacing. Like I need to speech pace right now. <laughs> so there's some ideas on what the family can do at home. And again, I chose this because it's some stuff that the family can do at home to carry over since they're requesting possibly increasing therapy. And it's a high chance that they probably would not get increased therapy or that's a possibility that they may not get the increased therapy. So um, I chose this so they can work at home with their child on it, or so they can share it with their treating therapist. And also so that they can have something that's fun to try to help uh, keep her engaged, him or her engaged in the, um, yeah, her engaged in the activity. Next. Move on to the next one. I think it's interesting, like you brought up that it, a parent wants either more or less therapy. It's like, I, I find that frequently we're trying to figure out like what, um, what the breakdown is like, is it sometimes kids are overdone and they just, they do need a break. So one of the clinics I've worked in, we would cycle kids. They could only come for three months for like 12 sessions. And then they would um, have to take a month off and then we would revisit it just to see if some natural generalization could kind of occur. So that was an interest, especially with CAS, which can be a really frustrating diagnosis. Sometimes you don't always feel like you're making leaps and bounds every week, but maybe a break is helpful. So I agree. And, um, I was going to say too, Tisani, you were talking about how like this case study, you know, the parents are kind of like giving us, um, mixed signals here. Like, you know, um, do we want to stop therapy or do we want to, you know, increase it? You know, what's, what, what's the best call. And, um, that's tough, you know, and I think with, with apraxia and with her only being in therapy for, a year, um, I, I would not recommend 
stopping therapy. Um, I know she's had this major life change. So maybe, I don't know, reducing to once a week or something. Um, but I know we all have kind of have different opinions about that. I mean, what, what would y'all do? Would you recommend to the parents? Okay. Let's take a break for a couple of weeks until she gets readjusted to this, this change and these behaviors reduce. How, how can we help with the behaviors or uh, do we keep going? I think I end up having a lot of like, tough, I don't, tough is not the word, but like deeper conversations with the family in these situations where are we coming to a place where maybe we need to accept that this isn't something that's going to like go from nothing to, you know, to, from having this language disorder to, not, or this speech, motor speech disorder to not having it at all. And sort of, it reminds me sort of of some of my stuttering training where you talk about the iceberg where, okay, on the surface, we have what we can fix, but the reason all this is happening is not just related to how they're speaking. So like, sometimes I talk to families about like, what other supports are you getting? Are you receiving, um, you know, maybe she would want to go to a, like a different type of therapy or counselor if to adjust to this change, you know, not that that's always our role to say that specifically, but sort of having that conversation of like, is speech therapy, what really the, the only thing here that we're, we're up against. And only if you have a good relationship with the family, would you have that conversation, but rarely you know, would you get to this point? I don't think, um, without some sort of relationship to have those conversations. Definitely. Especially if you're that far into it. Um, okay. Our resources back up to Sonia, you chose this one for the case study, the no prep dice game for Praxia, super fun game. Tell us more about why you chose this one. Oh, um, again, because it's a fun game and the family mentioned that she's often difficult to gauge and refuses to participate. And let's be real, sometimes because the activities are boring or because they're very repetitive or they seem like an exercise. So um, why not look for something that can be fun or that can make it a little bit more exciting, help to make the, uh, the child look forward to the sessions. And again, it's something that can be done at home. Um, so this piece um, includes some CV words, VC words, and CVC words, uh, CVCV words, CVCV, uh, and uh, two-syllable words. And I think it's just a good activity that the family can carry over at home. I'm really big on carrying over therapy at home, especially for something like, um, like apraxia of speech. Uh, because sometimes people just think there's going to be like an overnight change. And I think uh, one of the reasons why, which is why I, I mentioned that first uh, piece that I, I just mentioned uh, two pieces back. Um, sometimes a family just has to understand that it's not going to be something that will disappear after a year or something that will be addressed after six months. Uh, so um, I think these activities are great for carryover at home and they would be a good option to help keep their child motivated and engaged in the session. Fantastic. Thanks for choosing those. Let's move on to Heidi's resources. Heidi, you chose this one. It's called Ice Cream Syllables. So cute. Uh, three pages and um, it has little ice cream scoops with different uh, shapes and then um, some images at the end with ice cream cones. So tell us why you chose this one. Same kind of as the dice game. It's just fun. I think sometimes if a kid's been in therapy that much, it get like it is repetitive and boring. And we're not magicians. I mean, we can't always like make up a new game every week. But if you haven't used this one, and most kids love ice cream, I don't know why, you know, and cones. So you would cut them out and you make the different words. Um, 
and it really helps too with um photological awareness as well and i don't want to say spelling but sort of reading and eliciting um, and blending words so you could even also have them make silly words too because again with a proxy of speech you're really just working on the production of the sound at that point so just another fun cute activity that they you might get a little more buy-in um, from this little girl love it and you chose this one, um, two-page resource called Toys and Games to Complement Speech Therapy Sessions. Um, so tell us more about why you chose this resource. Um, again, sometimes we just need ideas of things to do. Um, we don't have time to create something brand new every session, especially if you're seeing somebody this frequently. Um, so these are just common games we list um, that a lot of schools or therapy departments would have. And it goes through the different um, it kind of tells you which area you could focus on, like voice resonance, articulation, phonology, receptive, expressive, or cognitive linguistic. But really, I think any game you could sort of tailor to what you needed if you were creative. So, um, and I'm not a big board game person, like in my own life. So sometimes I don't know all the stuff out there. So I was like, oh, these are cool games. I should should grab one of those and you could just grab it off the shelf and use it. And again, similar to teaching the family, like maybe having the parents come in for a session and be like, look, we're going to play um, Monopoly. Here's how I would make this an articulation type of activity or game so that they could learn a skill to practice it in a non-confrontational, non-therapeutic environment. So I like that, Heidi, a lot because, you know, like a lot of times you see comments made like, oh, you're just playing a game. Like, what are you working on? You're just playing. Like, we're just paying you to... Um... Play game with my kid that I could do at home. So you're like showing them which areas of development and skill areas that you're working on and then how they can do it at home, like you said, without, you know, overloading them with um like super scientific, you know, words and just kind of um an easy to do activity that's, you know, functional and realistic for them. I think that was all the resources we chose for the case study. So I think we're going to wrap up, everybody. Thank you um, again so much for listening in and watching in. Um, we want to thank all of you therapists for just continuing to be uh, keeping therapy informative, empowering, and person-centered. Um, and then you see the bullet points on the screen, just some more info for you. And then we want to also say this is our last episode of the Resource Roadmap Show. So thank you so much for watching. Megan, I think I need your permission to end the recording.